1: Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Zoltan Biederman about his wonderful book, Disconnected Empires, Imperial Portugal, Sri Lankan Diplomacy, and the Making of a Habsburg Conquest in Asia. Disconnected Empires was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Dr. Biedermann is Professor of Early Modern History in the School of European Languages, Culture, and Society at University College London. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Dr. Biedermann. Um, so, our first question is always biographical. Uh, where did you grow up and how did you become interested in the history of Portuguese Empire in Asia?
0: Yeah, hello, Sami. Many thanks for having me on this uh, program. Um, so, I was born in Hungary. My mother was Hungarian, my father is German, but I grew up between Germany, France, and Portugal. Um, I went to Portugal as a young person, I was 14. Uh, went to school there. Ended up taking my undergrad studies at the University of Porto. Uh, I think it's a good it's a good example of um, someone uh, you know doing getting into an international career without really starting at the top school. Um, so I went to this uh, local school in Porto. I moved um, back to Germany for an MA, which turned out to be practically a second undergrad degree. Um, and by that time, so in Portugal, I. I, I trained as an archaeologist really but there was a lot of history on the program so I ended up becoming more interested in history. Uh, For the second degree I took early modern history and a lot of cultural anthropology Um, and that's where I started to sort of get an interest in um, not Portugal as a country but Portugal as a a nation of sorts that has gone global and that created uh, written sources for, for many different places um, in the world. And that's, that's really what, um, then, um, got me going on my PhD as well.
1: Great. That's fascinating. I had no idea about your, uh, sort of intellectual and personal background so that it's always interesting to hear how people got interested in, uh, their area. Um, and that leads on to my next question, which is, um, could you tell us about the genesis of this particular project?
0: Yes, absolutely. So as I was saying, um when I did when I went back to Germany, I went to Munich um to do cultural anthropology and and something that I think most people in the Anglophone world would, would call um ethno history. Um it's which is sort of slightly, you know, awkward perhaps for people today and and slightly discredited, but essentially builds on the idea that uh, European sources, you know, after being properly critiqued deconstructed, reconstructed, can offer insight into the history of peoples with no writing cultures of their own. And uh, so I wrote a, a dissertation that later became my first book on the very obscure island of Socotra, which is today part of uh, Yemen. And I used Portuguese sources uh, for that. Um, I like that. I like the Indian Ocean setting. I like the, the island setting. Um, so, I, you know, as I was looking around for a PhD project, um, I came up with the idea of working on Sri Lanka, just across the water from Socotra. And the initial plan was actually to work on the 17th century and to um, do a comparative history of the colonial interventions of the Portuguese and the Dutch, um, because I, you know, being able to read both Portuguese and Dutch, it seemed like an advantageous thing um, to do. Uh, very quickly, however, as I started this, this PhD project, I, I realized I, I wasn't really understanding a number of things that were going on in the 17th century. And so I did, it did something that, um, you know, some people may envy me for, if I had the time to do this, I had the funding at the time, I went back to the beginnings. I just, you know, asked that question, what came before? And I went back as far as I could with the Portuguese sources to the early 16th century. And that really, that really is, you know, an impulse that I think, if we can control it, it's, it's great, but I, I couldn't control it. And in the end, I think it led me to a much more interesting story than the one that I was originally planning to to write about.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's always interesting to hear this part as well, you know, like the other questions that will follow, you know, I know where you're going to go with that, but uh, I had no idea this is, you know, how you got to this book. That's fascinating. Um. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with uh, this history, um, I was wondering if you could situate us by talking a little bit about the two major states you're dealing with uh, in the book. Uh, one is the Portuguese Empire, and the other is the Kingdom of Cote um, in the 16th century.
0: Yes, of course. So the Portuguese Empire, everyone has heard of it, of course. Um, it's uh, essentially an empire on a global scale built by a very small nation in a little corner of, of Europe in the southwestern um uh, corner of the iberian peninsula so i think this in itself should be sufficient to signal that there's a lot of explanation explanatory work to do why why is such a small country why does it go global how could this happen um one of the key tenets to to bear in mind uh, for anyone who who hasn't you know who isn't familiar really with Portuguese and Portuguese imperial history is that this is not something that happens in, in one go. This is not something that is planned. Right? Um, so Portuguese or historians of the Portuguese empire these days um, agree that there's a number of different processes that were grafted upon each other as things progressed, right. So, 1415, first conquest of an overseas uh, position in Ceuta in the north of Morocco, which is now part of Spain, um, and then you know West Africa, then the big um, um, sort of the big Atlantic travel around the Cape into the Indian Ocean, etc., etc. Each of each of these um, processes had its own reasons, its own moments, its own protagonists. And so on, and so on. Now, trade, of course, played a very important role in the Portuguese in Portuguese expansion globally, and that has been a, a sort of dominant theme in a lot of the literature. Uh, we often also hear, and we'll talk about this later, about the Portuguese Empire being more about trade than the, than the Spanish Empire, which would have been. Supposedly, more about conquest. Um, now, the important thing is that the Portuguese Empire cannot be pinned down to just one thing. Really, it's 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 global, and that means it it occupies a number of different niches. If you want um, political, ecological, um, commercial, cultural, military, etc. Um, it is also in many places. A territorial empire, or at least it carries the seeds of territorialization with it. Um, Brazil, of course, is the big, the big, uh, um, let's say, counterpart um, in, in the way people see it—counterpart uh, to the more commercial expansion in Africa and in Asia uh, in this period. But but it. Territorialization does not only happen in Brazil. That's really important. It does happen in Asia. It does happen in Africa, um, especially in the later sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. Um, so it's it's a complex empire. It's a composite empire that is composite not just in terms of you know lots of little places, bigger and smaller territories, but also lots of different kinds of places. That really makes it um, you know challenging to work on. Um, An important aspect of the Portuguese Empire in this period is that the the word conquest, so from the very beginning of the 16th century as the Portuguese enter the Indian Ocean world, the concept of conquest actually exists. It is there and people talk about it. Um, It is included in the royal title of the Portuguese kings, that they are lords of the conquests of Guinea, Arabia, India, etc., etc., um, but it essentially means subjecting other kings to a sort of symbolic, sup- symbolic, um, to the symbolic overlordship of the Portuguese kings, um, through tribute paying, usually. Um, now the Portuguese kings never took the imperial title, although they mused with this idea. They would, you know, that they, they would occasionally, there was talk about, uh, doing so, but, um, even though they never fashioned themselves as emperors. They did fashion themselves as kings of kings, which is a really important aspect. And that is a sort of a, a key tenet of the of the sort of the political dimension of this global expansion. Now, Kote is uh, a place, uh, an empire that very few people will have heard about. And um, really, it was a very small kingdom uh, with its seat at... Uh, a town, Jaiwarden Okura Kote, which is today in the outskirts of modern Colombo. It is actually, again, the political capital of uh, the country of Sri Lanka. Uh, Now, when I say Kote was an empire, I'm already being somewhat provocative. This was really a polity um, that very small, uh, and it had imperial ambitions, again, in the sense not of conquering the world, but of... The kings of Cote striving to subject, subject other lesser kings in the island of Sri Lanka to their sort of symbolic authority, to their overlordship. Yeah? So, it, geographically, it's very different from the, the Portuguese Empire, which uh, very quickly develops this sort of global vision, planetary global vision, um, whereas the Sri Lankan kings in the late medieval period have a, you know, gain a focus on the island of Sri Lanka itself. But the notion that you can be some sort of universal king of kings, a high, uh, uh, an emperor of sorts, a, a Chakravarti, really, uh, within this island space, becomes a very strong, important political um, guiding point. Let's say uh, as a as as a something around which political projects coagulated in Sri Lanka, and this. Structural commonality, then, between the Portuguese empire as an empire, you know, headed by a king of kings and the empire of Cote, much smaller, but also headed by a king of kings, this commonality, I argue, allowed these two imperial formations to communicate with each other really, really well, I think.
1: That's that's great. That really helps, I think. And those themes of um, imperial thinking... Uh, and structural uh, commonality really comes through. Uh, and I think we'll uh, we'll get to that again uh, in the next few questions, I think. Um, could you discuss the thinking behind the title of your book? Uh, I'm particularly interested in the disconnected part um, and what you describe as critical connected history in chapter one of your book. Uh, I should say that the dis in disconnected is in parentheses.
0: Yes, of course. So this is in link- a crucial aspect of, of the book, of the whole project, and of my thinking about early modern history. Um, I should perhaps begin by emphasizing that my insistence on this connection, as you say, you know, it has parentheses, is not meant as an attack on connected history. Um, let me explain how I got here, and perhaps that will clarify a little bit. Um, connect, connected history, and everyone knows and quotes abundantly, um, the key article published in nineteen ninety seven by Sanjay Subramanyam uh, about connected history, connected histories. Um, that really kicked off something incredibly important in the way we write um global history, the history of early transcontinental, intercontinental interactions, and I, I wish to take away absolutely nothing from the merits of that. It it was it was actually really important for my own um, understanding of things, it inspired me to take on, uh, the, the, the case of Sri Lankan Portuguese, um, history. Um, and I very much saw myself and see myself as a connected historian in many ways ever since I began the project, um, very shortly after that article was actually published. Um, one of the important, um, realizations behind connected history was that rather than reifying let's say Asian and European cultures as distinct entities, um, it may be more fruitful to think about the commensurability that binds them together and that allows especially elites to talk to each other across cultural divides. Um, For example, the Portuguese uh, royal family, the Portuguese empire, um, imperial agents with um, um, power figures in Sri Lanka. So all of this is really important, and and, and it's really changed the way that we look at the world, the early modern world uh, globally, as um, something that is not just shaped by Europe and the expansion of Europe. Now, my initial take was very much to look at um, Sri Lanka as a case of evolution, of development from commerce to conquest, from collaboration between the Portuguese and Sri Lankan elites towards something more sinister. So there was very clearly a sense of of change over time, which which of course remains very strong in the book. Um, but the beginning of the narrative was very much emphasising connectivity in a way that, once I took the argument to Sri Lanka, um, elicited mixed reactions. Some people were really thrilled about the whole notion that Sri Lankans initiated these contacts and that Sri Lankans drew the Portuguese into. Uh, the island into local warfare, local politics, as we will be exploring shortly. Um, but other people then ask me, why are you telling us this story? And implicit, of course, was why are you, as you know, a, a white person coming from a you know a relatively well-funded European environment, from you know being trained? I, I did my PhD uh, between uh, Lisbon the U- new university of lisbon and uh, paris the ecole pratique de etudes in paris um why am i coming from europe you know with funding etc from a position of power to tell people that they somehow that their ancestors had somehow caused the demise um, uh, and 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 drawn in the portuguese and, and now the, the that that got me thinking um, and and there is there is no straightforward answer to to any of this but Really, what it got me uh, to, in the end, was to realize I needed to be much clearer about the the embryo, the seeds of discord, of, of future divergence and of future disconnection, the seeds that were present from the very beginning of these interactions, rather than emphasize their late they let the, the late arrival of tensions into the picture. Um, so th- that, that really is sort of at the heart of my thinking about this connection. Um, I have written an article to clarify and to also, um, uh, give this notion a sort of a more general, uh, framing, um, so that it, it doesn't apply just to, to Sri Lankan Portuguese relations. It's, it's, of course, a, a, glo- a globally relevant, um, notion, I think. Um, and if anyone who's interested in this can can read my article in um, uh, the journal Modern Philology, which came out in the summer of 2021, titled being Disconnected History and the Multiple Narratives of Early Modernity, where I really explain what I mean.
1: Great, thank you. And uh, that's good that you mentioned that, and I will uh, link it in the podcast description. And I should say that, uh, you know, thank you for clarifying that, but, you know, Reading your book, I don't think the book comes off at all as uh, sort of whitewashing uh, European imperial conquest uh, in any way. Um, it sort of complicates the picture or nuances the picture, uh, but it does not, uh, you know, whitewash <laughs> imperial conquest in any way, as, as far as my reading of it. Um, so questions relating to connection, divergence, and conquest seem to be central to this book. Um, before we get into some of the chapters, could you tell us what the central argument of your book is? I think you've already hinted at it, but if you could maybe expand on it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's obviously hard to, to do this uh, for any book. Um, on the other hand, I remember, <laughs> I remember a professor in Paris once telling me, if you cannot sum up your project in one sentence, then you have failed. Uh, and <laughs> well, I'm, I'm failing
1: in that case.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying here. So I would say the central argument in my book is that a diplomatic relationship that had a good potential to thrive and remain relatively stable between mm-hmm. two polities, you know, in very different corners of the earth, ended up deteriorating gradually over the course of about 90 years. And that was this, that this deterioration was due to a gradual divergence at the level of political cultures, is really at the heart of my argument.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's, that's incredibly clear and succinct. <laughs>
0: um, so
1: aside from connection and disconnection, uh, to me at least, the other major themes and concepts in your book seem to be uh, sovereignty and, and the imperial, or the major ones. Okay. Um, how was sovereignty understood in this period by the leadership of these two polities, and what role did imperial thinking play in their diplomatic relations?
0: Okay, well, that's a big, big question, of course, and it is very important in the way I describe these two polities and I refer to their ability to interact. Um, it's perhaps best to go back to the beginnings of this whole relationship to explain. Around 1500, the kings of Cote had possession, direct possession of a core area, um, several thousand villages in the southwest of um, Sri Lanka, the southwestern lowlands of Sri Lanka, um, where you could say that the king exerted power directly. There were villages that he could distribute directly, that he could tax directly, from which he could uh, draw services directly. Beyond that very small core area, the king of Kote uh, tried to subject other kings living around him to his symbolic superior um, authority um, that area is the area that i see as being beyond the area of of, see, of of embryonic sovereignty and that is an area of suzerainty now all of this is of course quite you know tricky because sovereignty as such is only theorized in europe in the late 16th century so we're talking here um at a level of of analytical concepts of ideal types um and um you know, this is obviously debatable. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep it fairly flexible. Um, um and of course, uh, I think when you read the, 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 relevant parts of the book where I try to define these things, it becomes, it becomes clearer. Um, now in comparison to that in 1500, um, so at the same time as I was just describing for Cote, the, the king of Portugal, uh, had a perhaps most consolidated larger, uh, Space space of sovereignty already. Uh, the country itself has very old land borders with Spain, um, and those borders didn't quite uh, mean what they came to mean later on. But but there, there was a relatively stable spatial setting in the Iberian Peninsula around 1500. Again, I would call this an area of sovereignty, and then uh, an attempt to subject. Uh, kings out there overseas, as the Portuguese would say, uh, to the symbol, symbolic superiority of the King of Portugal. And that would be an area of suzerainty, roughly speaking. Okay. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, school, secondary school language, it's a distin- distinction between direct rule and indirect rule, direct control, indirect uh, control. Now, the, the literature is often not very clear on this at all for this. This, these earlier periods before sovereignty becomes fully theorized in Europe. Um, but I think there's a general consensus, and this is um, this is important. Um, and to use the words of Philip uh, J. Stern, I'll quote, the, the, that the early modern world was full of corporate bodies, politic and hyphenated hybrid overlapping composite forms of sovereignty. So there's a lot going on that is pre-nation-state and that historians of empire are now very aware of, of of constructing larger political formations out of lots of little pieces. Um, And that larger construction, I think, is best described as an exercise in suzerainty before it becomes something more akin to sovereignty. Um, The important thing for me is what happens when two such political formations that both know the distinction between Know, the operative distinction, if you want between sovereign core areas and suzerain regions around that is I think these two polities will be able to talk to each other in a way that we hadn't quite understood before we understood this this frame, this setting. Um, they can also co- co- coexist rather well and they can coexist both symbolically and symbolically and spatially if you want. Uh, symbolically, it's relatively easy for the King of Corte to, uh, offer tribute to the distant King of Portugal. Um, so that the King of, King, the King of Portugal can be King of Kings in relation to the King of Corte. Um, the King of Cote can thus be a, a subject, a tributary to the King of Portugal and at the same time remain an overlord within the island of Sri Lanka where he can in his, in his turn uh, demand tribute from other kings around him. Um, so spatially, what this means is that you have essentially an empire nesting within within another empire, and I've, I call this, you know, I thought it was fun to call it the the Matryoshka principle. Uh, that was first the, the first important in, in article written in English that I published in two thousand nine in the Journal of Early Modern History, which is very much still at you know at the core of the book. Uh, as it came out in 2018, Um, the the principle that one empire can nest within another and that that, that's okay for both uh, overlords involved in this transaction, that is really important.
1: Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, Now, we won't be able to get into each and every chapter in this conversation, um, but I was wondering if you could briefly tell the listeners how the narrative of your book unfolds. Uh, This way we can dip in and out of uh, some of the chapters.
0: Yes, of course. So this book has a narrative core that is, is very much monographic, right? Um, but uh, it also has some framing chapters that are explicitly concerned with some wider dynamics. So I would start with that. I think anyone wondering how to address early global contacts as a historian, as, a, as, a, as someone starting off as a historian or anyone else, um, they will find an interest in my preface, where I first addressed the danger, pointed out almost 10 years ago already by David Washbrook that I quote, the connections and networks favored by global historians end up up standing in for relations of force and coercion. So uh, in the the preface, I make it very clear that there's a politics to this book and that I'm aware of these politics and that I want to work very carefully with this. I think that could be of interest to many people. Um, There are some ethical concerns there, and they sort of tie in quite closely with the introduction, uh, which starts with a two-word question, why conquer? Um, and then chapter one, which continues with these concerns, addressing specifically the importance of defining what we mean by imperial, as I was uh, starting to, to to do. And um, I think this will be relevant to many scholars working not just on Asia, but on Africa and and the Americas. Now, the... The, if you want the the core chapters with the the main narrative, um, they 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 very much build on this. On so the framing is really in, important for them. And um, perhaps I should add here, or perhaps I have a, a moment to add here that in, in in when I when I talk about empires, I. I uh, Try to make it clear how we have progressed thanks to connected history and connected global history from a state of affairs in the nineteen seventies where historian historians would speak about the imperial theme in the European Renaissance with reference just to europe um to to you know history today being a place where we can talk about empires almost everywhere. Uh, there are empires in early modern Africa. There are empires in, in early modern North America, as we will see, uh, all across Asia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I call this the, the global imperial theme. Um, quoting, of course, Frances Yates, who, who spoke of, you know, in her classic work about the imperial theme in Europe, spoke about uh, Rome, the German the Holy Roman Empire, the French, English, etc. All right. So in chapter two is where I really go into the beginnings of the Sri Lankan-Portuguese encounter, uh, which uh, from what we know started in 1506, the arrival of a first uh, fleet um, in Colombo, diplomatic exchanges from the first uh, moment and uh, an attempt at alliance building uh, very much protagonized by the local Elite at that point. This led uh, through some tribulations to the establishment of a Portuguese fort in 1518. That fort, however, only existed for six years and was abandoned again in 1524, uh, which I think signals strongly the the reluctance of the Portuguese crown to make a a major investment in Sri Lanka. In chapter three, um, I look at how that abandoning of the fortress by the Portuguese authorities allowed a a number of Portuguese soldiers who had been in place to actually go and serve the King of Cote in 1524. Mm -hmm. Um, And that encouraged uh, the King of Cote to continue to interact diplomatically with the Portuguese crown, interestingly, uh, through the 1530s, 40s. In chapter 4, I widen the scope because um, a number of other princes and rulers across Sri Lanka uh, joined into the diplomatic game in the 50, after 1540 42 roughly chapter 5 um, chapter 5 um, begins with um, the murder of the king of Kotte Bhuvaneekabahu the um, we'll, 7th we'll talk about him a little more in 1551 so Things start to take a darker turn uh, at that point, and that's where I make a number of comparisons with uh, what was going on in the New World. Uh, I also look at how into how the city of Colombo became a center of empire that absorbed the royal court of Cote in 1565 and the sort of hybridization that went on there. In Chapter 6, I look at the transition from this sort of state of affairs where diplomacy played a major role In the 1580s to 90s, how, you know, gradually, um, the tone became more stringent, arguing for conquest. Um, chapter seven really looks at the beginning of conquest in 1594, the beginning of formal conquest between 1594 and 97. Uh, chapter eight makes sort of steps back a little to look at, to, 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 to sort of dissect, uh, the, the transition and the divergence that led to the sort of breakdown of, of diplomacy at the end of the 16th century. And in the, clu- the conclusion, again, I draw a number of um, comparisons and I, I sort of tried to reach out to, to historians across the board um, to ask questions of, of, of relevance, of course, why this case is really important for our understanding of the wider world and uh, how this case really uh, poses, I think some challenges, our understanding of global interactions in the 17th century.
1: Excellent. That's perfect. That sets us up perfectly for uh, the upcoming questions. So, In Chapter 2, you talk about how the Cote Kingdom wanted to establish a strategic alliance with the Portuguese. Um, What were they looking for, and what was the result of those early diplomatic overtures?
0: Okay, so in 1506, um, the the ruling elite at Kote, namely the the ruling king, the Harma Parakramabahu the ninth, uh, was basically following a long tradition of of Sri Lankan rulers seeking out allies regionally. Um, before the Portuguese had arrived, um, in in the island, their reputation sort of preceded them. Right, the Portuguese had been in, uh, active in South India since 1498. They were known as people interested in trade. They were also known for their military c- capabilities, especially on the sea and on the sort of terrestrial areas very close to the sea. Their, imp- their impact was often quite brutal. Um, the fact that they had cannon loaded on uh, so called high board ships, very sturdy, uh, uh, very sturdily built uh, ships that almost functioned as uh, floating fortresses with all that gunpowder, all that gunpowder um, gun and gunpowder on board. Um, so, so that, that gave them a reputation of uh, being to be feared, but also of being potentially very precious allies in uh, local uh, settings. Um, there's a pattern here that you can observe across various regions of the globe of um, there being competing rulers, competing elites in local settings, so micro regional settings, if you want, between, for example, Cochin and Kochikode in South India, or um, between Kote and a number of rulers um, in, in the island, and the sense that by attracting the Portuguese, by, by securing their friendship—to use a word that appears a lot in the documents from this time—by constructing an alliance, you would gain an edge over your local rivals. Right? So by, by compromising, by, by drawing in the Portuguese, you could you, would, you could get an edge over. Competitors. Um, that's that's really key to understanding why uh, the Sri Lankan elites wanted the Portuguese in the island rather than rejecting them. Uh, it's it's quite striking um, how uh, Dharma Parakramabahu the this king who was in in place at the time, he he embraced the Portuguese as, as friends and at the same time stopped paying tribute to his former overlord in South India. The Raja of Kolam. Um, and and Colam had actually sent troops regularly as part of the sort of, of the, the deal of receiving tribute. So it, it would receive cash payments effectively and, and um, uh, elephants and things like that in exchange for, for military specialists. And so, so, so really the local, the Cottean logic is to do exactly the same with the Portuguese. Pay them. They, they clearly want something like they want cinnamon. Uh, they are also often cash strapped, uh, but they can offer military support in, in return. Uh, and that's really what the, 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 the Sri Lankan fixation is, uh, throughout much of the 16th, um, century. So there's an expectation to, to, to get the Portuguese to do something locally. You, you reach out to them to attract them and to draw them into the local, uh, theaters of, of, of local warfare and, and politics. Now, the Portuguese, are not very interested in the beginning. And that's why, you know, when I first uh, looked at this story, I very much emphasized that the Portuguese really had no imperial project in the island in 1506. In 1513, they was, it was suggested to the Portuguese that they could build a fortress locally. They rejected it and even when eventually in 1518 they accepted it was a very half-hearted affair and that's why a few years later in 1524 the fortress was abandoned again right so the, the portuguese were really not interested locally specifically um where where is the the embryo of empire in this it's it's in the sort of larger thinking of the portuguese of, of their global preponderance their ability to be overlords across the globe but um that of course, no one in Sri Lanka understood in 1506. Um, interestingly, when the fortress was abandoned in 1524, I mentioned this already, About it, this, we're talking about a very small number of, of individuals, all men, around 30 men perhaps who um, had been in this fortress and who were supposed to return to uh, other possessions, um, in the south of India, Portuguese possessions, uh, but they stayed. They, they decided to stay on. Um, and they eventually fulfilled exactly the needs of um, the then new king, the seventh of Kote, who suddenly had a little platoon. It was like this tiny platoon of, of military specialists, but who were very good with guns, who had apparently. Very strong military training, good strategic and tactical thinking, and who proved to be quite an asset in the battlefield. And for some, for some time it worked in the sense that these Portuguese soldiers were practically detached from the Portuguese empire and served just the king of Cote. And that's exactly what they wanted. That's exactly what they had ambitioned. Um, Gradually, then, the Portuguese authorities became involved again, and um, the the fragilities of the B- VII's position vis-à-vis the Portuguese um, empire became more evident. But the paradigm remain, remained, and the desire to sort of perpetuate the state of affairs where this king could use Portuguese troops to, to defend himself against local rivals. Uh, so in 1541 um about the seventh sent an, an embassy all the way to lisbon this is quite extraordinary uh, an asian sovereign sending his ambassador directly to the royal court of portugal um and i wrote a lot about that there was ivory casket diplomacy which is very visual visually driven diplomacy where all sorts of imperial ideas are conveyed to the portuguese elite um and that, that is really what then led to other princes across Sri Lanka in the 1540s trying to do the same, trying to capture the attention of the Portuguese authorities and argue, look, we can offer similar deals. We can pay you if you send us troops. We can even, and this is the major change in the 1540s, okay. many of these princes start to argue, if you want, we actually are willing to convert. We are willing to become Catholics and become Catholic kings supporting Portuguese empire building in, in Sri Lanka. Um, so there's a invigoring of imperial ideology on the Portuguese side in the 1540s, and that, that's sort of immediately exploited by a number of of, of Sri Lankan kings and princes across the island.
1: Perfect. That leads us on perfectly to my next question. Um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading an excerpt from the concluding paragraph of chapter 4 uh, and expanding on the significance and legacy of religious conversion in, to uh, Luso-Lankan diplomacy.
0: Yes, so on page 121 I write, and I quote, The 1540s saw a sometimes disconcerting intertwinement of matters local regional, and global. With local political objectives in mind, Sri Lankan rulers and princes reached out to an empire operating across the region as part of its global interests. They appealed specifically to the most global aspect of its ideology, Catholic universalism, to convince its authorities to invest resources in the resolution of unquestionably local matters. Political ideas, however, however unrealistic they may now seem, were flowing at remarkable speeds, and they were beginning to make an impact. End of quote. So the the fifteen forties, as I was saying already, are really a key moment. And I, you know, just to sort of lay it out on the table, you have three main elements at work a as i mentioned sri lankan rulers and princes importantly sort of disgruntled princes who were not first in line of succession um there's all sorts of grievances in in uh, these kingdoms um kings who were uh, uh, you know in charge in sitawaka kandy jaffna etc uh in the island of sri lanka but who felt they could you know benefit from stronger interactions with the portuguese empire so they all launched diplomatic offensives they were really proactive diplomatically and i think it's really important to emphasize that they were the ones driving the diplomacy um, between these two these between the sri lankan polity and and the portuguese empire secondly the Portuguese crown in Lisbon and the governors or viceroys in, in Goa as well were sort of gradually becoming more receptive to um, this kind of offensive because in the 1540s there was a revival of the religious idea. So, this is slightly counterintuitive. P- people may think, you know, the Portuguese carried this Catholic zeal with them from the very beginning, and some certainly did, but in terms of building of the portuguese empire in asia of the so-called estado da india um the religious argument really only became preponderant in the 1540s late 30s perhaps in 40s the idea that somehow you would be building a rome in the east in goa and that you would be rebuilding a kind of a roman empire um across across asia but a christian rome a catholic roman empire if you want and that that uh, really took off in the 1540s and um that that really helped the communication um, at, at a new level uh, where you could talk about Empire in more concrete terms of converting con- kings converting converting their populations their subjects placing them in the service of the Portuguese um, Empire the Portuguese Empire then being obliged of course to defend these Christian populations etc etc the third element in, in this is there was a growing number of Portuguese agents on the ground, uh, of go-betweens, some petty nobles, people with no pedigree at all, who sort of developed personal ambitions at the in, at the interface. They were really crucial for communications between the margins, or you know, the Sri Lankan center, if you want, and the Portuguese authorities. Communications had to be in Portuguese, so you, you needed, for example, at one point, the King of Candy put out a rumor almost, you know, I need someone who can write letters for me that can go from Kandy in the central highlands of Sri Lanka to Goa and that people in Goa can understand. Right. So this, this soldier, this guy really, who happened to be in a tavern in Negombo, north of of Colombo, heard about this and, you know, set out and he became a secretary of the King of Kandy in 1542, 43. Um, and and really got things going and there's a number of these these people who are really fascinating uh uh because they serve both sides really um they become go-betweens and they don't just walk back and forth with letters they also help shape the imperial ideas of, on both sides and and um all that happens in the 1540s is really an explosion of, of communications in that period
1: Great. Thank you. Um, now in chapter five, you make some interesting comparisons between the situation in Sri Lanka and the New World, um, engaging with scholarship by the likes of Kathleen Duval um, and Pekka Himalainen. Uh Could you tell us how these comparisons help our understanding of Luso-Lankan diplomatic relations uh, that you're exploring in your
0: book? Absolutely. So this is a very challenging part of the book. It was was very challenging point In the story for me. And I think it will remain a challenge for everyone in the positive sense that there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, So after this diplomatic explosion in the 1540s and 1551, uh, something quite major happens. The King of Cote, um, who was the key ally of the Portuguese crown, uh, was murdered. He was assassinated uh, very probably by A Portuguese man in the service of the new viceroy in Goa for reasons that I cannot explain here. It's, 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 uh, it's complicated and, and it's actually also not very explicit in the, in the source material. So the moment of crisis. Now we are still very far from conquest, uh, which is going to happen four and a half decades later. But the turn to something darker really made me start to think about where, where, you know, where could I what could I compare the developments in Sri Lanka to? Um, now, generally speaking, comparisons and, uh, and connections between Iberian expansion in Asia and Iberian expansion in the Americas is is very rare in the literature. I mean, very often people refer to the desirability of connecting these things, comparing, um, but eventually very few, uh, no one really does it. Ev- everyone keeps saying we need these comparisons, but it's, it's very difficult to put this into practice um, that, separate subfields you know so there is academic dynamics people are trained in different uh, subfields the sources are in different languages the kinds of sources and archives archive are quite different um you know for young scholars it's often risky to to engage in comparative projects because you, you you know you don't want to be seen as weak on two fronts you will you want to be seen as strong on one front and you know get us. A, a, a job in, you know, Spanish, um, uh, Spanish Americas or, or, or Portuguese Asia or something like that. So, you know, um, what what I propose to, to do is to think across continents by asking a very basic question, by which I mean not simple but fundamental question. Uh, what what should we call this space in Sri Lanka around 1550, where a global empire is being manipulated by local rulers? um and these local rulers are outside of that global Empire's nominal sphere of, 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 you know, of possession there there is no Portuguese possession in Sri Lanka uh, although after 1551 a, a fort is re-established at Colombo but this is really just a town and beyond that the king of Cote is not inside the Portuguese Empire formally so Clearly, we are talking about borderlands of sorts. Um, the, the contact zone paradigm clearly applies. Um, but I do think we need to try to be a little more specific than that. Now, when I was... Um, uh, so I finished my PhD in, in between Lisbon and Paris in 2006, uh, and um, I got this fantastic opportunity to be a postdoc at UCLA, at the, the the William Andrews Clark uh, Memorial Library and the Center for 17th and 18th Century Studies has this wonderful uh, fellowship program which which is still you know ongoing there's a yearly theme and the theme that year was imperial models in the early modern world um it was uh, headed by you know, two Fantastic scholars who I looked up to very much, um, Anthony Pagden and Sanjay Subramaniam, and and it was really you know quite something to to be there and to 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 be given this opportunity. Um, uh, at some point, I went to a conference. I can't quite remember where it was in New York, or, um, and I met Sabine McCormack, who was um, uh, then at Notre Dame, a uh, major authority in Spanish colonial uh, history, especially for Peru. Uh, we got talking a little bit and, and she said, y- you have to look into the parallels between Sri Lanka and Peru, particularly. Um, the reason why she suggested this, um, she also at the time, you know, she, she was interested in getting this dissertation into a book series that she was editing. And, and unfortunately, she, she then, she died, um, very unexpectedly. So that led to nothing. But of course, the, the idea remained with me for some time. Um, why peru i think the main reason that she suggested this was the late chronology so that you know that it happened relatively uh, after a while let's say of, of imperial expansion um that that portuguese started to conquer um in sri lanka that there was a certain ambivalence to the conquest it wasn't quite even when it happened you know it um in in peru there was a lot of indigenous political Power structures remain in place and so on. Um, so obviously, in in the Americas, there's a long tradition now of revisionism, uh, you know, ambivalent empire by Inge Clendinnen. Um, the, the sense that we are looking at more than just <clears throat> conquest. Now <clears throat> that all this got me thinking, sorry, um, but in the end, I think you know, Sabine McCormack's suggestion was fruitful, but not really um productive in terms of I, I didn't agree with her in the end I, th- I thought it was it was um, a, a, a good um, challenge that she she gave me the the big difference is that in Peru earlier also in Mexico you know however you revise the history and you emphasize negotiation and ambivalence and indigenous agency and the survival of power structures even after you know the the spanish um, uh, settle you, you still have a nominal moment of conquest at the beginning of it, relatively close to the beginning of it right uh so within a few years after, after the first contacts um, aggression happens at a scale where entire empires are defeated uh, and the trauma happens and i think you know this is something that in the last 20 30 years the historiography of of the spanish americas is fantastically productive but sometimes people seem to go a little far in 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 forgetting about that initial moment of of you know that initial trauma of conquest And the conquest the the contrast with sri lanka is precisely this um we are still in you know up to 1594 there is no formal conquest um so, so, all of this stuff is occurring outside of the realm of formal empire of of um established formal empire okay, so to cut i've I've been going on much too long uh, on this but but it made me think, where else can I look in the americas and and suddenly, North America came into the picture uh which is something that we never read about as historians of Portuguese expansion but it seems to be totally. A different world out there, somehow disconnected from uh, from what what we do. Um, the first step, obviously, you know, ubiquitously, was Richard White's Middle Ground, but I I still felt it didn't quite resonate with what I had in Sri Lanka, and then I found Kathleen Duval's wonderful work on the. On the um, the native what she called the native ground, right, and that and that really seemed to be a good match for what I was seeing in Sri Lanka, um, because it was an uh, I quote here a space occupied by a strong Native American polity needing neither neither accommodation nor resistance to thrive, exerting significant pressure on newcomers to let themselves be incorporated into existing power structures. And when Europeans arrived. Duval argues, I quote again, they found themselves recruited by those who were already there, who sought to teach the newcomers their interpretation of the history, customs, and peoples of the region. So Europeans are made to, to, are forced into local power structures. And that very much resonated with a lot of what I could see in mid 16th century Sri Lanka. And then, of course, you know Pekka Hamalainen's work on on the Comanche Empire also comes to mind, um, and I think there's a lot of potential here for for, for further comparisons uh, in the future. But whole libraries of scholarships, scholarship scholarship n- never touched, you know, by one side and the other, are really there to be connected, and that's that's a fantastic challenge for the future.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was one of the most surprising and most interesting parts of your book was uh, those comparisons and bringing in Kathleen Duval's and others' work into it. I, I wasn't expecting that, but it was really interesting and um, was uh, worked for me at least. You know, I'm I'm obviously not an expert in this field, but uh, it was really fascinating. Um, now, in Chapter Six, you discuss the donation of Cote in 1580 um, with regards to the agreement between King Dharmapala and the Portuguese Crown. You write that, and I quote. The Portuguese version reads very much like an elaborate formula, rendering the fact that it was a part of Cote's exclusive historical heritage to claim to lay claim to overlordship over the rest of the island. The prospect was rather radical. The monarchy, rather than an empire nesting inside it, the Matrioshka principle, Sorry, the matrioshka principle, if not entirely suppressed, was transformed into a new hybrid imperial hybrid that neither the Portuguese nor the Lankan crowns had originally intended to create. End quote. Could you expand on this point and what the significance of this donation uh, was?
0: Yeah, thank you for reading that out. It's a bit it's a bit dense, and you know sometimes um, my prose, obviously as a non-native speaker, you know, takes some turns that that can be. Uh, A bit annoying. Um, Oh, not at all. I just want to clarify that was
1: was more my reading. I actually enjoyed it. That's why I picked it out as a quote, just to clarify. (laughs)
0: So you know, a lot of this is 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 um, a bit complicated. Um, But but the the, so just to take a very quick step back. um, In 1565, the um, court, the royal court at Cote, uh, was you know under siege, and it was decided to transfer it to Colombo, which was a Portuguese possession by that time. So. 1565 is the moment that um, an indigenous, a Sri Lankan um, royal court is transferred into a space that formerly belongs to uh, the Portuguese, the the fortified town of of Colombo. Um, That fortified space, too, became besieged in the 15. 70s repeatedly, and in 1580, uh, a siege was laid on this town by a, a rival um, king, um, the king of Sitawaka, uh, a neighboring king. Um, for so long that you know people grew desperate, and it's in this at this point that the the um, king of Cote, now residing in Colombo, wrote a document, made the donation of his kingdom to the Portuguese crown. So. Quite an extraordinary moment, if 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 you think about it. Um, the the contract, of course, was written in Portuguese um, because it needed to go to Lisbon and be um, ratified by the authorities there. Um, what this contract really does is, is it, it it ups the game of the of the Sri Lankan side and says, you know what you 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 have been sort of defending us here. But it's often been a little bit half-hearted. Uh, there's always that sort of specter of the Portuguese accepting another Sri Lankan king as their local, um, tributary and dropping, um, the family that, you know, had been collaborating for so long with the Portuguese. And so the, the king at this point is called the Harmapala, um, um, he 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 actually also has a Christian name because he has been baptized as as Don Juan, uh, in honor of the, the Portuguese King uh, John the uh, Third. Long story, um, but he decides to make this contract whereby he he bequeaths. He says, if I don't produce a male heir um, by the time I die, um, the kingdom as a whole, the crown of Cote will go to the Portuguese crown. So it's a it's a translation imperi if you want. It's a, it's a transmission of an impi- of an imperial mandate from Sri Lanka into uh the the hands of the Portuguese royal family. Um and that was was signed in um fifteen eighty. And the really extraordinary thing about it is it's not just a donation of a place, it's a donation of a mandate for empire in the island of Sri Lanka. Right, so it it really makes it quite imp- explicit that uh, actually I can read out what you know that that whoever was to inherit the realm, and I quote, shall legitimately wage war on the land and on the sea until they become entirely lords of the said kingdoms of Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. um, of uh, sorry of the said kingdom of Kote actually, and overlords so. Suzerains beyond Cote. Yeah? So the formula is really difficult to translate. Um, but but and uh, clearly there's stuff going on there between um, Sinhala and Portuguese, and then English, of course, that makes it difficult to to translate. But as I was saying, the extraordinary thing is that the the, the Portuguese inherit uh, uh, s- something that obliges them to continue to make war in in the island. And wars that will cost a lot of money now. Of course, 1580, to anyone who's familiar with Portuguese and Spanish history, uh, is, is a key date um, because, uh, of course, you know, ironically or by an ironic coincidence, that's exactly the moment that Portugal itself lost its independence in the Iberian theater. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and that leads perfectly to my next question. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the significance of, uh, you know, as you just talked about, the Portuguese losing their autonomy to the Spanish Habsburgs um, and what that meant for the eventual conquest of Sri Lanka by the Habsburgs in 1597.
0: So the first thing to say is that you know, this is nothing, nothing new, new. And in fact, the fact that there is this coincidence in time, the nation of Cote 1580, transition of the Portuguese crown into the, the hands of Philip II, of the Habsburg monarch of Spain uh, in 1580-81. It was really you know, sort of consecrated in 1581. Um, that in itself is a coincidence. And then you step back a little bit and there's a, 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 another coincidence apparently between this transition, 1581 and the beginning of the conquest of Sri Lanka in the 1590s. So, so Historians have often sort of rather sort of flippantly just affirmed, uh, and assumed that there must be a connection between the takeover of, of Portugal by the Spanish and the beginning of conquest in Sri Lanka. Now, the assumption here is based on this, this sort of another assumption, which is that the Spanish had a different way of doing things. The Spanish had been conquering lands, conquering empires in the Americas for, for, a long time for many decades. So they sort of naturally, you know, once they were in charge of the Portuguese empire, they would just replicate the same model in Asia. And, and Sri Lanka was, happened to be at hand for this replication. Um, I wouldn't say that the thrust of the argument is entirely wrong, but the real, this is really one of those cases where the story is much, much more complicated. And that complication is really Important and interesting. So it's not just you know sort of the nagging of a local historian who wants you to see that something happened between you know two very close dates, but there is actually a, a wider dynamic that I explore here. Um, that that is, I mean, to me it was one of the most riveting things to 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 sort of to to uncover and to to, to pull apart and to start seeing as as a as a picture. So. One important thing to bear in mind is that from very early on from the 1520s let's say more or less there had been voices on the portuguese side claiming that some sort of conquest should happen um in fact you know there had also been voices saying we should conquer china uh we we should conquer you know all sorts of places uh, out there it it had been the the portuguese authorities and the portuguese royal Family in particular who were reluctant because there was a lack of resources to do this sort of thing. So, conquest policy was not encouraged, but the idea was there and it was talked about. And in the 1540s, for example, during all those diplomatic initiatives and, you know, Sri Lankan princes promising to convert, quite a few voices came out to say, we should, you, you know, we should use this opportunity to conquer. So, There is a Portuguese tradition of thinking about conquest and talking about conquest. That's the first thing. Um, In the 1580s, 90s, there's also a regional dynamic in the Far East between uh, Manila in the Philippines and Macau in South China and uh, Malacca in the Strait of Singapore today. Malacca was a major command center of the Portuguese in in the south in in the far east and and also a bishopric and uh, there was a lot of talk there about new conquests in places like Cambodia uh, China again Aceh in Sumatra uh, and so on and so on um interestingly one key figure that is going to initiate the conquest in uh, Sri Lanka in 1594 uh, Pedro Lopes de Souza. he had been a captain of Malacca and he had been exposed to that sort of talk, conquest talk, if you want. Um, so there's a, a sort of a regional dynamic that has to do with the Spanish, but not it's not caused by the Spanish Union uh, directly. And then <clears throat> there's local opportunity coming into the picture because the main rival of the Portuguese in Sri Lanka uh, a king called Rajasingha, king of Sitawaka, uh, dies in 1593. So there's a power vacuum suddenly. Now, at that point, things take a turn to conquest without the Portuguese authorities in Lisbon actually being aware of it. Uh, and of course, you know, even less so the authorities in Madrid. Um, so in 1594, the post is created of captain general of the conquest of Ceylon. Um, And the first one is killed immediately in battle, but the second one goes and with the same mandate starts the conquest. And there comes a really interesting moment where some people in the Portuguese empire are against it and some people are in favor. And those who are in favor are going to use the clout of power structures in Madrid to get their way. And that's where if you want Spanish influence comes into it, but it's more of a Portuguese, an internal Portuguese process that reaches a sort of tipping point. And at that tipping point, the fact that, you know, there's someone in Madrid close to the king who can draw attention to this topic, that is going to sort of tip it over into proper conquest. Um, and you know, military aggression on, on on a very significant scale, with a lot of, of bloodshed and brutality over the next really five decades, four or five decades, um, that 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 remained so very traumatic for, to to Sri Lankans today.
1: Great, thank you so much for uh, expanding on that. That was really helpful in explaining how all these very complex sort of uh, dynamics sort of came together for. Um, to bring about what you describe as sort of very bloody and um, traumatic conquest. Um, Finally, I was wondering if you could read a short excerpt from your conclusion uh, and expand on your reflections uh, on that passage?
0: Yes, so perhaps on page 219 I write, most disturbingly perhaps, the case of Sri Lanka reminds us of how communication can work for some time, but also deteriorate until a dialogue falls apart. Commensurability and translatability may increase or decrease over time. Commensurable political cultures can be a fertile breeding ground for ideas of imperial conquest. Connection can breed conquest. So, this is what's really so disturbing about the, the Sri Lankan case. And I think also other cases out there, um, connectivity, which is something that we very much embraced from the late nineties onwards. And, uh, you know, especially I as a young scholar was very, very enthused about documenting connectability and, and, you know, explaining commensurability and how it made things work between very distant political cultures and all that. But then, you know, if if it leads to conquest, how do we conceptualize it? How what what how do we explain it? And in what terms do we explain it? Where do we locate the causation? Um, and and of course, you know, caus- causation is something that lots of people shy away from. Historians are, are very cautious not to, you know, overdetermine things. And 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 I think as a young, as a PhD, um, it, it's always risky to to you know to venture. Uh, to formulate causes. So, you know, I can see why people have have been very cautious about this. But when the collapse is so spectacular after such a promising history of interactions, you you have to ask, you know, what what happened? Why did it happen? And in what ways is that relevant uh to our wider understanding of the early modern uh connected globe. Um you know, in in some, uh, what I try to argue in in chapters eight and and the conclusion is that there is really by that point a massive divergence in political cultures between uh, Portugal, Spain on the one hand, and the Sri Lankan understanding of of this sort of combination of sovereign suzerain power structures in the island. Um, and you can see it when you when you look at the cartography that that is produced, the maps that are produced uh, around 1600. Um, the new cartography represents sri lanka as one island space the multiplicity of political centers disappears and there is a fundamental misreading of the imperial mandate that the portuguese crown inherited in 1580 in that famous donation so if you remember if if, if you know i just read it out that the king dharmapala bestowed upon the portuguese and by extension involuntarily upon the the Spanish, the mandate to subject other kings in the island to being tributaries. But that meant keeping them in place and through periodic renegotiation, seasonal warfare um, on an annual basis or biannual or whatever was doable, um, forced them into submission. But the Sri Lankan notion of empire was not that these people would be erased, that they would be taken out. It was just that they would be forced to pay tribute and so the order would you know be re-established periodically. Um, these are sort of political ideas that are very common in, in Sri Lanka and in parts of Southeast Asia at the time. The, the sort of court apparatus, the bureaucracy surrounding Philip II and then Philip the third around 1600. Is, is really does not understand this subtlety or, or maybe they don't want to understand it. It's not clear but there's a major sort of misreading of the whole picture and the notion becomes we, we are going to take out these kings and we are going to create a colony that is the size of the island itself. And so the island as a, as a territory where an extended sovereignty can you know, find its space fully um, without interference from local kings, that that's really quite a radical idea, and it it introduces a deep, deep rupture. Um, so I'm I'm sort of emphasizing here the the importance of the rupture uh, in the picture. So I think this is sort of more widely relevant in that, especially if we start to. To, to accept that the seeds for these misunderstandings may have been there for, from the beginning there's a certain european hubris portuguese hubris from the very beginning uh, even uh, you know in the very early contacts where um, you could argue that the two sides were sort of um, at at an equal level and and you know exchanging gifts and proposing deals mutually at you know I, I I even at the beginning of my project called it mutual conquest they were sort of conquering each other but but really even there the Portuguese are already talking about this king is inferior these people don't know how to fight etc um, etc cetera, et cetera. now um, the Sri Lankan case I think introduces a real dissonance into you know someone someone used the, the metaphor of harmony as a sort of an early modern euro, afro-asian world where you know despite all the conflicts the europeans were roughly at the same level and often inferior politically and, and militarily to to the great empires especially when it came you know to north india the mughals uh the middle kingdom and of course the ottomans uh, closer to home for for other europeans uh, the habsburgs were you know, more or less formally um, in fact tributaries to to the ottomans uh, Complicated story, of course, um, in the 16th century. So you, you know, there's a lot to go for this argument that that the Europeans were really just sort of slightly making trouble, but 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 still a minor drop in the ocean. Um, but I feel that you know, once I've spent so much time, and I hope that the, you know, listeners today will also spend some time, some more time with the book. Once you have heard this sort of dissonance, this stringent set of notes that don't create a harmony, it's very difficult to unhear it. And this is, you know, this is where obviously, uh, certainly some colleagues will disagree. They will say, well, but what's the relevance of this? You know, this is a tiny place in the south of South Asia, uh, while so much else is going on in other, in great imperial courts, in, you know, in North India, in China, etc. I don't think we can fully isolate one thing from the other. So any any european uh, you know however pitiful in his you know poverty and lack of manners and lack of hygiene and and all that all these these little go-betweens and diplomats english portuguese um french later dutch etc in in asia they they may seem very minor but they all know at least one thing which is the uh, massive impact of iberian expansion in the new world so it's I feel it's very difficult to 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 sustain a, a full sort of separation of these two things um uh, Thomas Rowe you know he he knew what and the English by the early 17th century felt they needed to catch up on you know Iberian progress they needed to be brutal in their own way they needed to make, have conquest they needed to have trade but also show show their, their their powers around the world so you know this is this is clearly happening and uh, did people how aware were people of of the conquest of Sri Lanka? I I don't know. You know. Future research may may tell, but but certainly it was known, and it was known that this was happening, um, you know, in in uh, South Asia, and that this transition to conquest was actually, you know, it was replicated later by the Dutch, and of course eventually by the British on a larger, larger scale. So you know, a pattern was also created, a paradigm that I feel is, is difficult to ignore. Um, I, I feel, you know, perhaps that ironically or paradoxically an excessive, um, confidence in the power of connectivity, um, which, you know, works quite well in certain settings, such as North India, um, but it ironically it has come at the cost of disconnecting those those processes from the more brutal interactions in the new world or in sri lanka or you know very soon uh, angola uh, southwest southeast africa um, and and uh, you know, the philippines of course um so in a sense we need to reconnect uh these things by being critical uh, of uh, of too much emphasis on connections and that's why you know i i feel that disconnection, which is a very unwieldy term, and I, I don't blame anyone for, for being skeptical about it, but um, you know, people are free to use whatever words they, they wish, of course. But I feel it's important that we sort of balance things a little bit, perhaps stop for a moment, look around, try to see the whole pictures and think about new ways of putting these various fronts of early modern globalization in, into dialogue with each other.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's that's perfect. Uh, you know, you've rounded this conversation out perfectly in your book and connecting it to what we were discussing at the beginning, you know, the connected, um, you know, uh, critical connected histories, uh, you know, that comes out perfectly in this answer. Um, So I've taken so much of your time, uh, Zoltan, but uh, before we finish, uh, could you tell us about what you're working on now? I know you're recovering from uh, COVID, uh, so yeah, but what are you working on? Uh, aside from recovering
0: i am recovering yes and, <laughs> and thank you thank you again for having me today it, it it's really been brilliant um and and uh, you know i i hope of course that people um will find an interest a wider interest in this in this work and i encourage anyone to be in touch with me of course um the the my new project is called the nascent globe indigenous diplomacy and european world making um i i'm lucky enough to have some uh united kingdom uh, uh, research funding for this, uh, through the HRC. Um, I explore basically the attraction exerted on Portuguese and Spanish agents of empire by local ruling elites. Uh, so there's a bit of a replication of what I have looked at for Sri Lanka. Uh, the, the power of the, the way that attraction shaped what we usually co, call expansion. And I'm going to, I'm going to look at six different regions. So this is sort of Ambitious, if you want, um, I'm going to try to connect uh, 60 different regions across the, the three continents or three oceanic spaces, if you want. Uh, so, look at the Caribbean, at West Africa, Gold Coast, um, the Swahili coast in East Africa, um, the Malabar coast or modern Kerala in South India, um, the Moluccas or Spice Islands or Maluku Islands, and uh, finally the Southern Philippines. Um, because in each of these little regional spaces, you have competing, uh, political figures who try to attract the Portuguese and the Spanish, all the Spanish, and who by doing this really shape the way that these two empires, um, expand globally. So in a way, you can argue that, you know, uh, global empire building was fed by these local power elites. Um, that's the main idea, but I want to make it very clear that I don't wish to romanticize things and sort of give a button-up perspective that you know, where everything is, is is great. Because once again, um, the whole thing only gains full meaning uh, if we look at what happens at the same time in Portugal and in Spain, where this notion emerges that we are lords of the world, uh, we are lords of the globe, we are the people who can actually navigate around this thing. Um, um, and And so by the time you know, the, the first circumnavigation happens in 1521, um, the Portuguese and Spanish have also started to develop a, a really considerable hubris, if you want, an arrogance and, uh, and, and, and overconfidence in their ability to shape the world. And that, I think, it's an attempt at, at explaining the birth of the global world before the great empires come into the picture, like the Aztecs, the Mughals, etc. Before 1521, I think, you know, a lot, Uh, that has not really been paid much attention to recently uh, happened in those years, in those crucial years. So I'll try to offer a a more or less comprehensive narrative of that.
1: Wow, that sounds really fascinating. I did not know that was your upcoming project. So looking forward to reading that and hopefully we can have you on New Books Network uh, once that is published as well.
0: Oh yeah, that would be wonderful.
1: Thank you, Zoltan.
0: Thank you very much.